Well, I would ask you please to take your Bibles and turn with me again to uh, the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be reading the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 7. And since this is God's Word, out of respect and honor for God's Word, if you're able, I would ask you to stand together with me as we read. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, Without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham uh, gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people. That is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his, uh, his descendant uh, from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the greater person is blessed by the, uh, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. <clears throat> in the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, here we go this morning. We're we're continuing on in the, the study of Hebrews Um, The author of Hebrews has wanted to give uh, his audience, uh, those who were the congregation, if you will, he's wanted to give them some solid food, as he calls it, solid meat, and all they've wanted is milk. And he says, I can't give you the solid food yet because you're not able to grasp it. You want to stay on the milk. And he he goes on to... um, warn them about falling away and, and, and encouraging them to, to stand firm. And then he talks about the certainty of God's promises. And he comes back to what he started before he said, you're on milk. He comes back to say where he started saying, I'm going to give you some meat. And I'm going to give you some solid food. And so this morning, as we come to this place, I want you to know we're, we're beginning with what the, we're, we're getting back to what the author of Hebrews says. Now, this is solid food. This heavy-duty stuff. If you just want milk, um, th- this won't do it. This is solid food. You need to be ready for it. And so the author of Hebrews wants to give it to that first century Hebrew Christians that he's writing to and through the Holy Spirit in uh, inspiring him to write these words, God wants to give it to us today. This is, this is some meat, this is some solid food, he begins. Um, he began in chapter 4, as you recall. Um, if you've been with us all that time, you'll recall he's talking about 
Jesus being a superior high priest. And then he goes on and he begins to talk about him being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then that's when he takes this, this break. And now in chapter 7, he's, he's getting back to it. Um, he's saying this is some stuff that maybe was difficult for you to understand. And it may be difficult for us to understand today as well. And I think it would be even more so maybe difficult for us to understand, particularly because I don't think we always understand the Old Testament. And he's taking this from the Old Testament. When we look at the Old Testament, we often see it simply as different stories that give us good moral lessons. Uh, we heard them growing up in vacation Bible school and in Sunday school. We would hear stories about David and how David would go out and with God's power, he would defeat the giants. And we would be told with God's power, you can go out and defeat giants in your life too. But that's not... That's not the only way that the writers of the New Testament saw the Old Testament. In fact, that's not the primary way that they saw the Old Testament. Certainly they would see these stories and you could gather moral applications from them, but that's not the primary way in which they saw the Old Testament. And I think that we need to take a cue from the, from the authors of the New Testament as how we ought to see the Old Testament as well. The author of Hebrews is going to uh, interpret the Old Testament uh, passages as what he's going to call types and shadows. These are things that are not the realities, but they're pointing to the reality to come. They're going to see the authors of the New Testament see the Old Testament as promises of what's going to come. And they see in the New Testament with the coming of Christ and the new covenant fulfillment of those promises. And so when they look at the Old Testament, they look at all the promises and all the types and the shadows and the things that are pointing us to Christ. And then they point out how these things were always pointing us to Christ. Even Jesus did this, right? Jesus talking to the religious leaders, you remember? And he's saying, if you believe, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote about me. Right? Even the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And certainly on the road to Emmaus where he takes his disciples and starting with Moses and all the prophets, he, he goes and he tells them everything that happened to him had to happen because it was fulfillment of the Old Testament. The promises looking forward to him are fulfilled in him. Now that's the way that the, that's the, way that the New Testament authors see the Old Testament. Promise, promises concerning Christ, he has come, and now he's fulfilled it. And so they continually look in the, in the Old Testament to see, yeah, this is fulfilled in Christ. Um, this is the way that I think we need to read the Old Testament as a promise and the deliverance in Christ in the New Testament. And so uh, Hebrews takes what uh, seems to be, for many of us, uh, an obscure passage about someone that most of our Sunday school lessons have avoided. Um, we, we see him, if, if you want to turn quickly to it, uh, to Genesis chapter 14. We're going we're gonna to do a quick study uh, on this individual. Throughout the Old Testament, everywhere he's mentioned, we're going to look at it here real quickly. 
This is right after you recall Lot was in Sodom and they were taken over by these kings and um, Abraham has to go out and rescue his nephew Lot. And so they're coming back from his victory uh, of rescuing Lot and the king of Sodom. And then in, in Genesis 14 verse 18, that's where we read about this, this character, Genesis 14, 18, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham, excuse me, then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. <clears throat> That's it in Genesis 14. That's where we've seen. This is, a, this is the situation, the circumstance the author of Hebrews is writing about. Now let's continue to search out uh, the Old Testament for this person named Melchizedek. So uh, hold your, or you can leave that if you want and go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 4. And this, uh, the author of Hebrews is already quoted back in in Hebrews chapter 5, but in Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if we want to go on studying Melchizedek in the Old Testament, we're just not going to be able to because these are the only two passages in all of the Old Testament to talk about this, this character named Melchizedek. In fact, if... If you look in the New Testament, there's only one book in the New Testament that talks about Melchizedek, and that's the book of Hebrews. So these are the only places that... And so, you know, most of the time, I guess, uh, growing up as we're learning of the stories of the Old Testament, we don't, we don't necessarily get to Melchizedek. He's like a paragraph in Genesis, one verse in Psalms, and now in Hebrews 5, the end of first chapter 6, and here in chapter 7. And that's where we get Melchizedek. Why is he so important? Well, he's so important because, well, you see, he is a priest. And he's the type, he is the, the priest who is a type of the one to come. He is the priest who is pointing out what the one to come will be like. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Now, part of our problem with understanding all of this, I believe, is that we don't have priests. I'm not your priest, right? And um, we don't have priests like to go to, as the Hebrew children were always able to. They could go to the temple in Jerusalem. They'd go to their synagogue and there would be a priest there. Uh, he would pray for them. He would do sacrifices for them. They knew they needed a priest, since we don't have a priest like that, a physical one, we go to uh, physically on a, on a daily or weekly basis, we, we may think, well, maybe I don't need a priest. What's a priest about anyway? Well, as uh, one uh, theologian named Gerhardus Voss said, a priest is one who brings men near to God, who leads them into the presence of God. You see, in order for people to come to the, into the presence of God, they need a priest. They need a high priest. William Barclay said the Latin word for priest is pontifex, which means a bridge builder 
The priest was a man whose function was to build a bridge between men and God by means of the sacrificial system. In order for us, in other words, to come into the presence of God, we need a priest. I need a priest. You need a priest. They understood that they needed a priest. They weren't necessarily seeing it so much in their new religion, this, this, this Christianity where they accepted the Messiah that was promised and they had come and, and come to a religion with him. They hadn't seen their priest the way they used to. And so some of them are thinking, well, maybe I need to go back to that because of the priest. And so the author of Hebrews here is pointing out to us that, no, we do need a priest. You still need a priest. But I want you to understand, you can't go back to that priesthood because the priest of Christ is so superior to them. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, um, he's going to tell us how Melchizedek was superior to Levi, was superior to the Aaronic priesthood. And as we see this, we'll see how our priest, our high priest, is superior to any Old Testament high priest or how he's superior to any other thing that we think of could bring us into the presence of God. Okay? And so this morning, I want us to see uh, some of what he tells us about uh, the uh, this individual named Melchizedek, we, uh, we don't hear a lot about him. Two places in the Old Testament, not only here in the New Testament. But he's very important. And so, um, and so let's, let's look at this, uh, this individual named Melchizedek and about his priesthood. Okay? And the first thing that we notice is that it's a royal priesthood. We see it in verse 1. Uh, this Melchizedek was king of Salem. He is a king. Um, we see it, of course, in Genesis 14. And in, in uh, Psalm 110, the first verse says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the first verse of Psalm 110 is talking about the one to come. He's going to be the king. And then in verse 4, we've already read it, that, he, that God swears that he would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So he is a royal priest. He is a king and a priest. Now, in order for this to be fulfilled, it would not be possible for him to be from the tribe of Levi. He would not be able to be a Levitical priest because it was forbidden for a Levitical priest to be king. He could not hold that office. He could hold the, the, the office of priest, but he could not hold the office of a king. And so in order for um, Christ to come and, and truly fulfill both roles of prophet and priest, he has to be a priest from a different order. The Messiah had to hold both offices. And he had to be from an order other than the Levitical order. And so we see how God has worked this out. God works it out by promising that the Messiah to come would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not the Levitical priest. Okay? Some of you are going, what are we talking about? Okay, this is the meat, okay? This is the meat. This is the reason it's so difficult for some of us. But the first thing I want us to see is he points out that this, this priesthood of Christ, 
This priesthood from which Melchizedek looked forward to was a type, and he was a royal priest. He was both king and priest. Christ, if he had been from the line of Levi, would not be able to fulfill that. And so Melchizedek points us forward to the one who would come, who would be both priest and king. Secondly, uh, we see, hopefully you've got your outline in the bulletin this morning, right? Everybody got that? Secondly, I want you to notice that not only was he a royal priest, he is a righteous priest. Look with me in verse 2. Um, the, uh, this, we'll start in verse 1 again. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and uh, priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, this is important here, this, this order here. He says, first, his name means king of righteousness. His name means king of righteousness. So the, uh, you know that in Scripture, uh, uh, names have meaning. Even Abram, as we saw, his name was Abram in Genesis 14. God later changed his name to Abraham. And so instead of uh, Abram, exalted father, Abraham, father of many nations... Right? And uh, so God changes his name. You remember when, when Jesus meets Cephas and he changes his name, right? What did he call Cephas later? Peter, right? He changes his name. Even the name Christ, it's actually a title, but it has meaning. Even the name Jesus, right? And the angel comes to uh, Gabriel, or Gabriel comes to Joseph there in uh, Matthew chapter 1 says she's going to have a son. You're going to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Names have meaning in Scripture, and Melchizedek's name has meaning. It means king of righteousness. And so this is kind of interesting because uh, all in the area around where they were at that time, there were all kinds of, of pagans, and there was not a lot of righteousness before God around there. Um, John Calvin writes, he said, it's doubtless no common uh, thing that in a country abounding in corruptions of so many superstitions, a man was found who preserved the uh, pure worship of God. For on the one side he was nigh to Sodom and Gomorrah, on the other to the Canaanites, so that he was on every side encompassed by ungodly men. You know, it's difficult for us to remain righteous in the midst of all the ungodliness that we see around us. We're so influenced by the media and all the, the different things that are out there working on our minds, trying to tell us uh, things that are right, which God's Word clearly tells us are wrong. Um, we even see this in churches who so want to be, I guess, accepted by a culture at large. So many churches have... Um, call themselves churches, should be about the gospel, should be about the law of God and the gospel. And yet they have said abortions are fine. We want to support the woman's right to uh, have an abortion. Or they would say, well, homosexuality is just a different lifestyle. We want to support that. And it's okay for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman. In fact, we'll even ordain uh, anyone who's homosexual. And in our churches, we'll be able to marry them if they want to come to us. And you look at it, and, and, and even the church 
so often churches that were at one time solid uh, in their doctrine have been so influenced by the culture around them that they, they have fallen. It's a difficult thing sometimes to be in the midst of all this unrighteousness to stay righteous. And yet here's this individual named Melchizedek who's surrounded on every side by, uh, by corruptions and, and as, as uh, Calvin says, many superstitions. And yet he remains righteous. This man's very name sets him apart as a righteous man. <clears throat> pointing forward to Jesus being a type of the one to come. The one to come will be Jesus who is a righteous man who would come as the pure, spotless Lamb of God. And the New Testament will tell us uh, he, uh, uh, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. And we see throughout that Jesus is a complete and perfect obedience to the Father. He knew no sin. He was the absolute perfect, righteous uh, priest. And this priest, whose name Melchizedek, meaning uh, king of righteousness, points us forward to the one who would come who will be a king of righteousness. Not only is he a royal priest, but he's a, a priest of righteousness as well. Um, thirdly, we find in verse uh, 2 again that not only is he a royal priest and not only is he a righteous priest, but he's a priest of peace. Uh, as we go on, uh, verse 2, first his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. See, Salem means peace. Um, Salem, shalom, if you will. Uh, the author makes an issue about the fact of which comes first and then comes afterwards. He says, first, first, the name means king of righteousness, then also the king of uh, the king of Salem means king of peace. This is the order which it always has to be. In order for there to be peace, the order cannot be reversed. There always has to be righteousness first, for without righteousness there is no peace. Um, Isaiah, you can just jot this down, Isaiah 32, verse 17, <clears throat> says the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. Is it any wonder that we don't have peace in our world today because there are so many unrighteous people who are, who are, I guess, ruling? And we look for peace and we call for peace, but peace will not happen as long as unrighteous men rule. Even peace with God um, comes only as a result of righteousness you may recall when we were studying Romans, Romans chapter 5, the first verse, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, now, remember what justification is. Hopefully you can tell me how because I labor this point so often. What is justification? It is God pronouncing us just. It's, it's a legal term in which the, uh, the judge of all the universe looks at Christians and says, You're just. You're righteous. Not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of Christ. Paul has, has told us this throughout uh, Romans. And so he says, therefore, since you have been justified, since you have been declared righteous through faith, what? We have peace with God. How does peace with God come? It, it, it only comes when there's righteousness first. Peace only comes when there is righteousness 
And so this, uh, this uh, Melchizedek, he is a, is a uh, righteous, is a royal priest. He's both uh, priest and king. He is a righteous priest, and he is a priest of peace. And thirdly, fourthly, I want you to note not only uh, these three, but he's also uh, of a priesthood that's not inherited. Look with me in verse 3. <clears throat> Talking about, uh, the, uh, about Melchizedek, he says, Without father or mother, without genealogy, uh, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of Man, he remains a priest forever. Now, will you look and go, so Melchizedek is eternal? I, I don't. I don't think so. This has caused many people to look at Melchizedek and say, well, he is a, a, a Old Testament appearance of Christ. But it seems that the author of Hebrews says, no, he, he's just a man, but he was certainly a type of Christ. He was looking forward to the one to come. And so how is it that he has no uh, father or mother and he's without genealogy? Well, where do we find him first? In the book of Genesis, right? Throughout the book of Genesis, everyone you meet over and over and over again says, so-and-so's father was, or he was begat by so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and until this person comes. And so in a book of Genesis, it's a book of genealogies throughout, always giving everywhere you meet somebody, where they come from, who were his parents. And um, Melchizedek comes with no record of father and mother. We read it. Didn't give his father, didn't give his mother, didn't give a time when he died, didn't give anything like that. And so this is quite different from a Levitical priesthood. Uh, if you were part of the Levitical priesthood, you had to be able to verify the fact that you were descended from Levi. In fact, when in Ezra, there was an individual who wanted to be a priest, but they couldn't verify that he was actually from the tribe of Levi. They couldn't find the records. So it's found in, in Ezra chapter 2, verse 62. He couldn't be a priest because they couldn't verify that he was from the tribe of Levi. Well, um, and, and so in the tribe of Levi, you inherited the priesthood. If your father was a priest, you would be a priest and so on. But the priesthood of Melchizedek was not something that was inherited it's something that God declares about Jesus in Psalm 110, verse 4. He swears on an oath. You will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's not something that is inherited. We're going to find out next week that Jesus was from not from the, the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And no one uh, has been a priest from the tribe of Judah. It's only from the tribe of Levi. It's, but it's not inherited. And therefore, Jesus can be a priest on the, on the promise of God that he would be a priest on the order of Melchizedek. He goes on, uh, fifthly, that his priesthood is an eternal priesthood. Uh, look with me again in verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Within the Levitical priesthood, if you're going to be a priest, you'd be a priest for some time, then you would die, and your, whoever was your child uh, or someone else would come and take your place. Someone else would have to be there. In the order of Melchizedek, one is a priest forever. Jesus is a priest forever. No one's going to take his place. 
No one's going to need to take his place. He's not going to die. He lives forever. He is our high priest, even today, in the order of Melchizedek, which is an eternal priesthood. I didn't add 6 and 7 on the bulletin, on the outline in your bulletin, but we have 6 and 7. I know that sermons are supposed to have three points, but this one has 7, okay? So um, look with me in, in uh, verse 6, the end of verse 6, on through verse 7, we see another aspect which makes uh, the, the priesthood of, of Melchizedek superior to the priesthood of Levi. <clears throat> Verse 6, This man, however, did not trace uh, his descendants from Levi, and yet he collected a tenth from Abraham, and he blessed him who had the promises. Uh, and then on down to verse 7, And without doubt the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In other words, he's saying this person is superior to Levi, is superior to the Levitical priesthood because the greater is the one who blesses the lesser. And he's the one who blessed Abraham. And within Abraham is Levi. So he's greater because we see who gives the blessing. And it's Melchizedek who's giving the blessing. And uh, so he is superior to, the, to Levi. And then, and then in verse 4, and we see him making a big deal of this uh, throughout uh, these uh, 4 through 10. Um, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave uh, him a tenth of the plunder. Abraham gives him a tithe. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe. Um, and so he, he goes on to make a point that Levi, who's still in the loins of Abraham, is giving Melchizedek a tithe. He's showing, even Levi is showing that Melchizedek is a superior priesthood. Okay. Seemed more like a Bible study, didn't it, than a sermon. So much information about Melchizedek, right? But it's really not about Melchizedek, right? Didn't we talk about the Old Testament, how we read it? It's talking about promise and deliverance. Melchizedek comes on the scene because he's pointing us forward to one who truly is the king of righteousness who is truly the king of peace, who is truly the king forever, who is truly the king and the priest at the same time. He's the one who points us forward and is really about Christ. Jesus is the true king of righteousness. He's the one who knew no sin. He's the one who was the spotless lamb of God. He's the true king of peace. He's the one, only one who brings us peace with God. In our sin, we will never know peace with God. As soon as Adam sinned, his eyes were opened. He sees that he's naked, and what does he do immediately? I can go hide. I don't want God seeing me like this. There's no peace there, right? Later, the people come to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And as they're standing there on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, um, they see the, the mountain and the lightning and the mountain and smoke coming up from it and thunder and God's voice billowing out these, these Ten Commandments, booming out these Ten Commandments. When it's done, they are scared to death. And they come to Moses and say, Don't ever let him talk to us again, please. You go. Listen to him. See what he wants to say, and then you bring it back to us, okay? Coming into the presence of 
of such a holy God, Isaiah, again, as he sees God in his holiness, is, is stricken with his own holiness, and he falls before him, pronouncing a woe on himself. That's not a peaceful existence, coming to God with our unrighteousness. But Jesus, the King of Peace, comes and he brings the righteousness that is necessary for us to have peace with God. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, you know what, you're thinking you need a high priest. Why would you ever go back to that one? That one who, who, who was so less than the high priest that we actually have right now. He's the order of Melchizedek. The order of Levi is nothing in compared to this. For us as Christians, how do we get any application out of this? Well, I think one of the things is if we're looking for peace in life, if we're looking for security in life, if we're looking for some other way to God and any other thing, if we're looking for meaning in life anywhere else, we're not going to find it there. It is only in Christ Jesus. Why would we ever look anywhere else? The only pathway to God is Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Why would we ever look anywhere else? Why would we look to experiences of life or, or wealth or, or maybe other religions? We can't do that. For God has supplied us with the great high priest who is a royal priest, a righteous priest, a priest of peace, priest who has not inherited it but has received it on a priesthood on a promise, who is an eternal priesthood, who is even now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our high priest. We need to rejoice in that. Let's pray.